Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, it is um, 3.37 in the morning on Friday, December 1st. I need to be at the hospital in two hours to check in because today I am having fibroid surgery. This is The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. I've had fibroids since I was 25, and I'm not the only one. They're super common, especially among Black women. Everyone I've talked to who's had this procedure is like, girl, it is so worth it. As much as I'm nervous about going under and the pain and the recovery, I'm also really excited because I'm going to get some relief. Fibroids are benign tumors that grow in the wall of the uterus. They can cause a lot of symptoms and even affect fertility. I was first diagnosed with fibroids back in 2016. I'd had heavy periods since I was a teenager, but they'd gotten worse as I'd gotten older, lasting over a week and leaving me tired and anemic. Often, my cramps were so bad that they made me nauseous. And fibroids grow, so the original one got bigger. Over the years, my doctor found another sizable one. My symptoms were worsening, and I was a candidate to get them removed, so I went for it. Turns out, there were more than two. Ultimately, they removed 10. The largest was the size of a mango. Yes, a mango. I don't know what caused my fibroids. In fact, we don't really know what causes them for anyone or why some people get them and some don't, but doctors do have theories. Some think genetics are a factor. Some think it could be chemicals we come in contact with. Others think a factor could be a phenomenon called weathering. Weathering is a term that public health researcher Arlene Geronimus, she coined several decades ago. That's Dr. Uche Blackstock. And essentially, it's this idea that dealing with the chronic stress of everyday racism causes a wear and tear on our body that prematurely ages us, that actually makes us, as Black folks, susceptible to developing chronic diseases, like heart disease, like autoimmune disease, also like fibroids. Dr. Blackstock is the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity, an organization that works to end racial health disparities. She's also the author of Legacy, a Black physician reckons with racism in medicine. 
I'm Dr. Blackstock, but there was an original Dr. Blackstock who was um, my mother, Dale, Gloria Blackstock, and she really was a huge influence and role model for my twin sister, Oni and me. Oni's also a physician. I asked this Dr. Blackstock to talk more about the impact weathering has on Black people's bodies. Basically, almost every health outcome we do very poorly against. And it's not because there is anything inherently wrong with us, but there is something very wrong with the social systems that we live in. And so it makes life really hard for us. So this idea of weathering, I think, is so important for us to talk about because it may seem covert to some people. It may not seem very obvious. But there is a stress that we live with every day that actually wears down our body. And, you know, that's something that we need to really be aware of and how it factors into us developing other diseases. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what stress does to the body? I mean, we all hear that adage about Black don't crack. Maybe, you know, people look younger, but our bodies are telling us a different story. Yeah, I mean, it's actually in so many different ways. Like, for example, we know that Black birthing people have a higher cortisol level than their white peers, about 15% higher. Cortisol is a stress hormone. That's like the hormone that goes up when you are in a fight or flight response. The problem is that hormone should not be consistently high. It should go up you know, as needed, come back down. But with us, with Black folks, because we have to go through the stress of living in essentially a racist society, our cortisol levels are consistently high. That causes an increase in our heart rate, a stress on our heart, an increase in blood pressure. There's also this other idea that this study called epigenetics, the study of gene expression and what happens when people are stressed. And there's also correlation that because of the stress that we live with due to racism, that causes a change in how genes are expressed. So while race is a social construct and it's not biological, how we experience racism can turn on and off genes. And so we think that actually has some implication into why Black folks are more likely to develop diabetes, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory diseases like heart disease or atherosclerosis. Even it's been implicated in infant mortality. And that is actually passed down from generation to generation. Even looking at our DNA, when you compare the ends of our DNA, and so those are called telomeres, when you look at our telomeres, Black people and other people of color, our telomeres are shortened. They actually look like they belong to people several decades older. So again, race, social construct, no biological basis for it, but the impact of racism and practices and policies and interpersonal react interactions actually has an impact on our DNA. I'm glad you brought up epigenetics because I think of that a lot. Maybe it's my own spiraling and I am not a scientist, but I think of, you know, just like the stress of enslavement, of like Jim Crow, of all these things. And I don't know, just this idea that like I have been in these foremothers for generations and just there are times where I'm like, OK, the buck stops here. It ends with me. But that's hard. It's interesting that you bring that up because there's this idea that, say, when a grandma was pregnant with her daughter, right, her daughter's eggs were impacted by the stress that she was going through. And so that's why we think about our tissue being subjected to stress, us passing down that tissue from generation to generation in how you know babies are formed, 
genes being passed down, which is why like this whole idea, even about maternal mortality has been implicated in genetics. So we think that the stress that enslaved black women endured in the cotton fields, being raped by enslavers that actually has been transmitted from generation to generation and that has impacted the size of black babies today mm. or how well black birthing people do when they give birth. So it's real, it's real when you think about this, this idea of ancestral trauma, that it's very, very much a field that's being studied and that has been validated and has legitimacy too. Why aren't we seeing as much research on this and particularly weathering? Why aren't we seeing, you know, why aren't we seeing more research? There is research out there. The problem is, is that a lot of this happens in these academic silos. And that's why I think a lot of the work that I've done over the last few years, it, you know, it really sits on the foundation of the work these researchers have done. But I wanted to find ways to connect the dots and communicate it to the general public. People like Arlene Geronimus, David Williams at Harvard School of Public Health, these are folks that have been doing health disparities research for years. And we really need to get this information out to the public, not just to the public, but to health professionals, because <laughs> they're the ones that are taking care of us. And so they need to understand and have this very holistic idea, especially of how their Black patients live, work, play, and pray. Like They need to understand when we're in the clinic room or exam room with them, that it's not just us and them. It's us and the whole environment that we live in, what we're subjected to when we go to work, what we have to deal with when we go to school, you know, microaggressions, quote unquote. All of that is implicated into how healthy we are. I would love to dig into some more data around, you know, how these disparities work. There was this really interesting example you've talked about when it comes to Black immigrants and the difference in health disparities we see between people who have lived here a while and people who haven't. Could you talk about that a little bit? I feel like it's so important to bring up like what happens to Black immigrants' health when they've lived here for several generations, because I think people also like to <laughs> use the Black diaspora to divide us, yeah. you know. But the fact is, is that when Black immigrants come to the United States, like their health status is on par with white mm -hmm. Americans. But what happens is after one to two generations, their health status actually declines to that of Black Americans. So what that tells you is that there is something very wrong with the forces that Black people are subjected to just living in this country that our health status could decline after one or two generations from that of white Americans to Black Americans. Another thing is just think about like, there is nothing inherently wrong with Black people. There is something very, very wrong with the systems that we are forced to live under or within. And that is what is accounting for this decline in life expectancy. You know, we have some of the, the lowest life expectancy of any racial demographic groups. But I will say this, overall, Americans are not doing well. <laughs> like the life expectancy for even white Americans has decreased since the pandemic started. And when you compare us to other high income countries, we have not, it has not bumped back up. It continues to decline for all racial demographic groups with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, of course, bearing the worst. How did this fraught relationship with the medical establishment begin? That's after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. 
Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. We've laid out some of the reasons people, especially Black people, get sick in the first place. But what about disparities in care? What do we see when it comes to caring for patients, Black patients? So there is this, like, you know, systemic stress on us. But then there's also the stress of these interactions that we have with health professionals where often our concerns are minimized, dismissed, or ignored And we see that, especially for Black people, socioeconomic status, your profession, your educational level of attainment is not protective against these sometimes very toxic interactions that we have with health professionals. 
One issue is an issue of pain that is deeply rooted and based on these racist myths and tropes that started during slavery, that Black people, we are somehow biologically different. We don't feel pain the same way. It's the way that slavery was justified by saying that we are biologically different. A lot of that, whether explicitly or implicitly, is still taught in medical education. And our health professionals are no different than you know everyday Americans. They absorb this anti-Black cultural messaging. And so when they interact with Black patients, often we're not seen as fully human. You know, I write in my book, Legacy, about patients with sickle cell disease because sickle cell disease has been racialized as a Black disease in the United States, even though it is an inherited disease that's based on geographic ancestry and not just people in Sub-Saharan Africa, people in the Mediterranean, people in South Asia. But because most of the people with sickle cell disease in the United States are Black, it is racialized, considered a Black disease. And because of that, there has been very little funding directed towards sickle cell research. There are very few therapeutics for it. And because of that, patients with sickle cell disease end up in pain crises in the emergency department, in our hospitals. And compounding the issue, they often are stigmatized as drug seekers and treated as quote unquote addicts and made to feel suspicious of and treated very, very poorly. So it, it's kind of an example of how systemic issues are then compounded further by interpersonal issues when health professionals underestimate patients with sickle cell with their, their pain that they're in and then undertreat their pain. And a lot of times there is a source for that pain that is never investigated. So that can lead to delayed diagnoses, misdiagnoses, harm, and even death for our patients. You tell your own story where you interacted with the healthcare system and it helped connect these dots. It's It happened when you were in med school. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was a first year medical student. I developed really bad vomiting and abdominal pain. I had to go to the ER a total of three times over the course of a week to be properly diagnosed. And by the time I did, I was diagnosed with a ruptured appendix and actually ended up having significant complications leading me to be out of medical school for a month. But during those times I was being seen in the emergency department, I was repeatedly questioned about my sexual activity. Like I was not believed. And this is something that happens a lot to Black people, especially Black women, you know, given like these myths about Black women and promiscuity. I was also told that I didn't really seem to be like I was in that much pain either. So my pain, again, was underestimated and that made them consider the ultimate diagnosis less. And so, like I was saying, you know, when there is pain and pain is ignored or dismissed, we are usually missing an underlying diagnosis. And, and so for me, that diagnosis was appendicitis. In that moment, even as a medical student, I didn't feel empowered enough to say anything back to the doctors or the residents who were caring for me. My twin sister, Oni, who was also in medical school with me, during one of the visits, was like, I think you have appendicitis. Like she even said, she even said before wow. they said what the diagnosis was, but we didn't even feel empowered enough to speak up. So as medical students, if we didn't feel that way, what does the average Black patient feel? They have studies that show that Black patients are often spoken over during interactions with physicians, that we often leave these interactions feeling like having a negative affect. Like we're just like, that just didn't go well. I didn't feel seen, heard, and appreciated. And for me, that helped really inform how I cured for patients when I became a practicing physician. 
Yeah. And I'm I'm glad that you also brought up the emergency room because a lot of this is also about access to health care. And for a lot of black people, the emergency room is sort of their first point of contact for a lot of health care. I always say that access to health care, especially culturally responsive health care, that is like that is a racial justice issue because Black folks, we just, we're more likely to be uninsured and underinsured. And because of that, we don't get the preventive care that we need that would prevent us from having to utilize the emergency department. So a lot of times we are just proportionately the ones in the emergency room. And then especially we're more likely to go what's termed as minority serving Mm. hospitals. So those are hospitals that see a majority of Black patients. And those hospitals we know, when you look at the quality metrics and outcomes are inferior to hospitals that serve mostly white patients. So the quality of care, the resources that are available, the specialty care is inferior to other hospitals. So it's like we're trying to access care. And then when we do, we do it in settings that are not prepared to adequately care for us. There is a distrust of doctors in the medical field. And, you know, that's a factor in care disparities. And the reasons for it are rooted in, frankly, a very violent and upsetting history. Could you talk about that a little bit? There is a very high burden of unmet health needs Mm -hmm. in Black communities. And that is because of this mistrust and distrust of the health institution, which is based in these this history of exploitation and abuse of Black bodies that's, you know, that started during slavery. And this is the other thing. A lot of this was done by people who were highly respected mm. and regarded within the discipline of medicine. So, for example, J. Marion Sims, who's the father of modern gynecology, he was the first president of the American Medical Association, which is the oldest and largest organization of physicians, but it also has had its own history with bias, discrimination, and racism against Black physicians. But this person had a statue across in, in Central Park across from the New York Academy of Medicine for decades. Uh, was finally taken down a few years ago. But he made these really impressive and life-saving discoveries. He, he invented the vaginal speculum that you know, is used during OBGYN appointments. He, to this he, day. To this <laughs> to day. This day. If someone telling you to scooch, they likely have a speculum in their hand, yeah. He also um, developed ways to fix vesicovaginal fistulas, which was essentially tissue damage that happens during the birthing process. And he did this for both Black and white women, but we know for Black enslaved women, it was because there was a reason to want to fix these so they can continue to have children because there was financial value to that. But mm-hmm. he did, he made all these discoveries on enslaved Black women who could not give consent, one, and he did it using these incredibly painful surgeries that even once local anesthesia had been developed, he did not give it to them. Mm. Again, this whole idea of not feeling pain has been unfortunately perpetuated until even today, where you know we have there's a study in 2016 of medical students and trainees at University of Virginia where they were given a mock case of two patients presenting in pain, same case, the only difference was the race of the patient, and the students and residents consistently underrated the Black patient's pain, so they had Mm. less pain, gave them a lower dose of pain medication, and the authors of that piece also came up with these myths about Black people. Black people have thicker skin, Black people have different nerve endings, Black people can't feel pain. 
the students who were more likely to underrate the Black patient's pain and give a lower dose of medication were more likely to believe in these racist myths that the authors developed. So that's 2016. So we have to think about the history piece is so important why I talk about it in the book is because the reason why health professionals today are under treating Black people and why there's pain inequity is because of these myths that you know, still have been perpetuated in the medical school curriculum, either implicitly or explicitly. If we are revering these, these white men who have made these incredibly helpful, you know, inventions, but done so in the most disgusting, racist, um, exploitative, horrific way, then what does that say about our discipline? I think it's really interesting that, you know, you're talking about the impact on doctors, especially during training, because... And one aspect I did not know about until I read your book was the Flexner Report by Abraham Flexner. Could you talk about that and also talk about the impact that that had on Black medicine? You know, part of the book, it was not just talking about, like, why we in 2024 see all of these horrible racial health inequities in our communities among Black people, despite advances in innovation, technology, and research, but also why are there so few Black physicians? And so I wanted to talk about the Flexner Report, which is a report that came out in 1910 that was commissioned by, again, the American Medical Association and Carnegie Foundation. Essentially, they commissioned an educational specialist named Abraham Flexner, a white guy who he himself had a lot of avidly racist writings. He felt Black students were inferior, that the only reason we were in medical school was to prevent our white peers from getting sick. Mm. Um, and so essentially the report was to assess the state of all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to compare them against the gold standard, which are you know, Western European schools and in the U.S. Johns Hopkins Medical School. Mm -hmm. So for example, they had to have very stringent admissions criteria. They had to have a certain number of physician scientists on faculty, a certain quality of laboratory facilities and resources. As you can imagine, historically black medical schools because of the legacy of slavery, did not have the same endowment or resources yeah. as these other schools. And that report led to the closure of some white medical schools, but there were only seven black medical schools at that time. They had trained about 1,500 students. The report led to a closure of five out of seven of those schools, leaving behind Howard and Meharry. Mm. It's estimated that if those five schools had remained open, they would have trained between 25,000 and 35,000 Black physicians. Oh my God, that's so many. I know, and we know Black physicians because Howard and Meharry still train the most Black I mean, physicians. one of my best friends who is probably listening to this podcast, she's she went to Howard for undergrad, for pre-med, and then Meharry for like med school. And same with like one of my other best friend's moms. Like I know so many doctors who went to Howard and Meharry for med school. HBCUs, and those two are still carrying the burden of educating the most Black physicians. But if you can imagine 25 to 35,000 Black physicians, how many patients they would have cared for? I mean, hundreds of thousands of Black patients, if not more. The number of Black students and trainees they would have mentored, even the research they would have done, not just on Black health, but health in general. I mean, that is such a tremendous loss to our community. And it's one of the reasons why we see the numbers that we see today, but also just to mention that 
you know, I was talking to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley last week. I had a panel with her. She talks about these policies as policy violence mm. towards our communities. And I thought that was such an important term. And it reminded me of the recent SCOTUS decision on striking down race conscious admissions and how we could perhaps see a ripple effect, maybe not in this generation, but for generations to come, like we saw for the Flexner report, how that could impact pre-med students medical students and the diversity of what our health professionals look like in the future. So what other policy solutions could fix racial health disparities? One more quick break and that's next. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. In 2020, we saw our health systems just, they were stretched to beyond the breaking point during COVID-19. And, you know, there's still a strain on resources because COVID-19 is very much still with us. How did the pandemic change the conversation about health inequities? Did it change anything? You know what it did? It just basically brought like these conversations that we were having in our silos about health equity and racial health inequities. It just brought it to the forefront and, and it brought it to like become part of the public discourse. It's interesting because like my organization that I founded five years ago, Advancing Health Equity, to work with healthcare organizations to dismantle racism in medicine, I founded that before the pandemic started. I mean, there's so many of us that saw this issue and saw what was going to happen. And what the pandemic did was just expose these deep fissures that already existed in our healthcare system, especially the ones that impact Black communities the most. You wrote this op-ed about lowering the age for Black people to get the COVID vaccine, in part because of weathering. Like, how are we seeing and are we seeing these, like, outsized impacts of health issues on Black people? Like, is that leading to treatment and different, just different ways to address it? So it's so interesting because 
We see what racism does to Black bodies. We, we die prematurely living in this country. In terms of the vaccine cutoffs, they didn't take into account that Black people, we have a very different age-related mortality than, than white people do, and especially in COVID. Like, many more of us, we were dying at the same rate as white people, like, more than 10 years older than us. When we think about policy, right, and how policies impact communities, we need to make sure they're equity-centered. These cutoffs that are absolute cutoffs are not inclusive of Black people and this idea, not this idea, but this fact that we die earlier because of racism. Is there a way to know how old our bodies are physically? Definitely, like, looking at the telomeres, you can, like, say this person's body is seeming like it's the body of a 60-year-old or of a 70-year-old. But obviously, that requires a lot of technology yeah. to look at. But we just see, like, we just see in the data just alone. We saw it with COVID. The fact is, is that the wear and the tear and the fact that we are more likely to carry a higher burden of chronic disease because of lack of access to healthcare, because of the stress of everyday racism, because of the kind of jobs that we are, you know, occupationally segregated to perform, right? Like all of that impacts our health. And so when a pandemic happens, that's why I knew like in March of 2020, when I was caring for my, I knew even before that I said, this is going to impact our communities in the very worst way and in the most disproportionate way as well. What's on your policy wish list? Like when you think of what would solve these problems, these inequities, what do you think would lead to better health care and better outcomes for Black patients? I think a lot of the solutions have to happen at multiple levels. I see multiple levels. They have to happen like within medical schools in terms of how the curriculum, how medical schools are educating our future physicians, um, not just about including the history, but understanding how what we call the social determinants of health, education, employment, access to free access to healthy foods, green space, all of that impacts health. So actually giving medical students more of a holistic education as to how people can stay healthy and how they get sick. So that's one thing. But I think also, also for hospitals, it's really their obligation to keep track in real time of health equity metrics to see, are there differences in how our patients are being treated compared to white patients? Are there differences in prescribing habits? I was working with one ER where Black patients were waiting 80 minutes longer to be admitted to the hospital from mm. their ER than white patients. So we talked about actually developing standardized processes to keep track of that and then to make interventions as necessary. And then I think for our policymakers, I want them to think about health in all policies. We know that because of like the legacy of slavery, because of discriminatory housing policies like redlining, essentially have deprived our communities of wealth and resources and opportunities. So when we think about, you know, opportunities for home ownership, for building wealth, when we think about education and how can we provide our children with a free quality public education. All of that is incredibly important um, to making our communities healthier and our community members, as a result, healthy. This is part of a three-part series we're doing this month about Black women and the way policies affect Black women in particular. And, you know, whether I was speaking with Julia Craven about evictions or Diane M. Stewart about marriage or with you about health care, it feels like the answer a lot of times comes to at least some form of reparations. Absolutely. And Absolutely. it's just so it, it's just all of these experts saying this is what it takes. And it doesn't feel 
real. It feels like it won't happen. We have to talk about, you know, policy, what does reparation policy look like? And for some reason, when it has to deal with our communities, it's like there's so much anti-Blackness that enters the conversation. But I, I, I absolutely agree. I think because of policy, like federally sanctioned policies, our communities have been deprived of resources, opportunities, and wealth for so long that it has made us sick. And that in order to get us healthier again, we need like an intentional, direct investment. And I don't even want to say reinvestment, investment in our communities. And that, can, that looks like cash payments, but that also looks like building up like community-centered work, organization, community partners that are focused on health and all policies. Does the political will to get these things done exist? Like, it's one thing to have the idea, but then it has to be implemented. I know. That's why I wrote this book, one. But also, two, we, ha- we got to put the pressure on. Like, like these, like, we got to put the pressure on our electeds to say, like, this, this is a priority for us. Like, in 2024, why is it less safe for a Black birthing person to give birth than it was 20 years ago? Like, that does not make any sense, but it does show how deeply embedded racism is in our society. And it's unacceptable. The fact that we have worse maternal outcomes than other high-income countries and even some middle-income countries. Mm. And we spend even more on healthcare than they do. So your book ends with a call to action, but I also wonder for those of us, and in particular Black women, who have to navigate the healthcare system as it exists today, what are some things we can do to make it as safe as possible for ourselves? This question is always a hard question yeah. for me, only because it's the system. It's not, it shouldn't be up to us and it shouldn't be up to Black women to have to feel like we're going to war when we are at our most vulnerable and seeking care. But obviously there are some things I always advise people to do. You know, there was this viral TikTok video recently about a white health professional who said, why are all my Black patients on FaceTime with someone when I come mm. into the room? While I'm doing a history and physical to understand better what's going on with their problem today, they have someone on the phone. They're either just talking on the phone or they're on FaceTime. Why is that? It's because we don't trust you. So I always recommend people either bring a a trusted friend or a loved one with you to an appointment. It could be for moral support. It could be to help you ask questions. Also document your symptoms. Document, you, you know, how... When did the pain start? When did the symptoms start? How long has it been? Make sure that you have everything written down because often during appointments, you can get very nervous, right? Um, Ask your doctor or health professional, say, I want to know what do you think is going on? What is your plan for me? What is the follow-up? What are red flags where I should come back or seek care or go to the ER? But also just know that Black women, we are doing amazing things. Like there's Health in Her Hue, which is a digital startup run by Ashley Wisdom, and that is a directory of Black health professionals and culturally responsive health professionals who are trained to work with Black women patients. There is the Earth app, I-R-T-H app, also started by a Black woman, which is a directory of maternal health providers that specifically work with Black birthing people. So we're the ones also that are creating the solutions to make the healthcare system more accessible and respectful to us. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode and to all the other episodes in our Black Women and series this month. 
We've learned how policy impacts housing, relationships, and healthcare for Black women, and for Americans in general. If you have an idea for a show or a series, or just want to let us know what you think, shoot us an email to weeds at vox.com. That's all for us today. Thank you to Dr. Uche Blackstock for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Melissa Hirsch fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Poulin Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.